can have a seat, and good morning. If you're in third grade or under, you can uh, go to your classrooms at this time. Um, that is our prayer. Like, I love the songs, Thank You, Worship Team, because those songs are just so appropriate to, like, what our prayer is and, and what we're talking about this morning, this idea that we are being holy gods, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, which I got to explain to my, one of my kids as we're singing, and it was so awesome. She's like, Dad, why are we, why are we saying it that way? And I was talking about how we're giving all of ourselves to God. Even when our brothers and sisters are mean to us, we decide not to retaliate. We're holy gods, and so we, we choose to respond in love. And she rolled her eyes. But, um, but then we sang this other song that said, I want to be where you are. I mean, isn't that what, our, what we want? I mean, that's what I want. I want to be where God is. And yet, as we talk about what it means to like fiercely follow God and be all in with God— I'm a person who, and I think most of us, want to have our cake and eat it too, um, so to speak. We We want to be all in for God, but as long as it doesn't cost us everything. And that's hard. I mean, you know, we talk about doing crazy things, but what about following God when it's just absurd? So once upon a time, true story, but once upon a time there was a a man who was an up and up-and-coming Northwest pilot in the 90s. Um, He's in his 20s. He's got um, a great wife, and they start having kids. And after four kids, they decide, we need to go, like, build a big house on the sprawling edge of the suburbs. And so they do. They go, and they build this great big house on the edge of the suburbs. And and they, like, they love God, and they love life, and and they say that God has blessed them, and, and things are awesome. They, you know, I mean, in the ways of being able to have everything, and then 9-11 happens. And so now this early 30s guy is put on furlough for months and months. And then he comes back and flies a few times. And then he's put on furlough again for months and months and months and months and months. And now he's like, okay, wait a second. Now, my wife who didn't have to work, all of a sudden we got to figure out how we're going to make our house payment. And I got to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And I'm sitting around and so I'm wondering and I'm praying as he's saying... And, and at, in the midst of this, he gets a call from a, a good friend, a college friend, who, who says, you know, there's some mission work in Central America. I think you should do some mission work in Central America. And he's like, well, that's not really going to pay me. And he's like, I know, but it's something to do. And so he's like, all right, I'll go. So he goes on a week-long trip. In the midst of that week-long trip, he realizes that he's not only supposed to do it again, but he's supposed to take his family down to Central America and he has to get through his wife. And so he's like, it's just six weeks. It'll be an extended camping trip. It'll be fun. The kids will enjoy it. You know, they're ranging from about five to about 12. And, um, and I, you know, I think, I think we should do this. And she's like, you know, I don't think we should. But if, if God is saying that to you, uh, maybe then God will say it to me. Uh, long story longer, God kind of does speak. And, and they go. Uh, she's, she's got a piece of, from, that this is from God. They go on this six-week trip, which turns into, um, after they come home, several months later, they realize they're supposed to do this for a year. So now they pull their kids out of school. They homeschool their kids. They fly down to this country. They take a five-hour truck ride, followed by a two-hour hike into a village um, where they only speak Spanish, now, one person in their family speaks Spanish, but nobody else does, um, except the guy who's dropping them off that's like, okay, you know, good luck. And, 
And so they're left there. Now they're two hour hike from anything. Like not just not just uh, the cub store. Oh wait, there's not cub. But um, no medical help, no telecommunications because there's no electricity. And now they have to start living life, learning Spanish, learning how to cook, learning how to do laundry with no electricity, with no actually running water, which kind of goes okay for a while, but um, then the reality of their situation sets in and the reality of not having very good food and not having very good water sets in. And so all of a sudden, two and a half months in, they're all four out of the six of them are sick. Um, all of them have lost at least 10% of their body weight. Um, one of them is vomiting so severely their youngest that literally they're holding him, they can't do anything, and they think he's going to die. And in the midst of that, they're crying out to God saying, God, help us. God, we've, we don't get it. We've trusted you to this point. We've followed you even to this point of, of absurdity, really. Where are you? Why? Why are we here? Now, maybe you've never held somebody to the point of death um, with no help and really, really no hope. But my guess is if you've reflected long enough in your life, God would show you a point in your life where, where believing in him or following him just seemed kind of absurd. And so if it's absurd, why do we do it? I mean, why do we say, let's be all in? Um, you know, there's a, there's a quote, like, everything in moderation. And so some of my friends are like, hey, Rob, everything in moderation, even Jesus. And, and I'm like, you know, like, I just, that's hard. That's, I, I can't buy that. I'm like, really? Because aren't we supposed to be sold out to Jesus? Aren't we supposed to be wholly his? And yet, what does it mean for everything to be okay in moderation? And so, where in your life does following God seem a little crazy? If you haven't been here for the series that we're in, we're going through um, some parts of Joshua, some major parts of this book of the Old Testament, where, where God is bringing a new people into a new place to start um, a, a really to show the world what it looks like for people to be in relationship to God. And so God has said to them, he's giving them beautiful land. He sent spies into that land to check it out. They've even entered the city that we're about to talk about, Jericho. God's provided someone to help them escape from that place. God's provided a miracle that stopped a raging river. God's even sent an angel to speak to their leader to say, prepare yourself spiritually. So all those things have happened, and now they have. They've prepared themselves spiritually. They've prayed. They've confessed. They've celebrated God's miracles. They're, they're ready. They're set. They even have hundreds of thousands of soldiers, some of which came um, from there's 12 kind of tribes or clans, and so three of them wanted to settle on one side of a river, and those people like brought 40,000 of their soldiers to combine with these other nine tribes. So they got a lot of soldiers. And they're like, I have to believe they're thinking, hey, God said we're going to take this city, so let's go. Let's take it. You know, it's the, the state hockey tournaments right now, and so it's a little bit like that. You know, these adolescent boys with hormones raging through their body, like, and facial hair starting to come in, and they're putting on these pads. I have to be thinking that they're, like, gearing up for this ultimate battle. And they put everything on, and they're like, yeah, let's go. That's a little bit like where we're at right now. If you have a Bible, we're in Joshua chapter 6. 
and we're on the cusp of this battle, if you will. It says um, in the first verse, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in and no one came out. There's a fear in the land. Like, like people have heard that there are these people that have this God that does miracles for them. Like he went through, they went through the Red Sea. There was a fire, a pillar of fire. They, they, God provided food for them. God stopped this river for them. And now they're in their land. And so everyone has a fear around them. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a loud blast from the trumpets, have the whole army, army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go Everyone straight in. Now, if I'm a soldier, that doesn't sound like much of a battle. That's like um, a warm-up. That's like, uh, if we're going back to our hockey tournament, like, go skate around for practice, and then go sit in the, the box, and just wait. Um, they have to march around a city. They don't have to say anything. In fact, they're not supposed to say anything. They're not really supposed to do anything other than march. Now, it's a big city or a big town, but it doesn't take all day if they have to march around it on the seventh day seven times. So what are they doing the rest of the time? Well, we don't, we don't know. We're not given that part of the story. They might be questioning God. They might be questioning their leader. They might be saying things like, hey, this is absurd. We have enough soldiers to charge this city. Why do we have to do it this way? And, and Joshua, if they said that, I believe would respond because God said that we have to do it this way. Then why would God say it? Why would God do it this way? Um, I, I can think of a few reasons. Um, maybe you can think of some more, but I think one of the reasons that God wants it to look this way is because when we do it by our means and our power and our way, we get the reward. We get the glory. Um, it's as simple as like when I go to the grocery store and you know have a giant cart, which happens very rarely, I'll just be honest. But when I have this giant cart of groceries and someone behind me has like two, and I'm like, oh, do you want to go ahead? Oh, thanks. You're such a great person. I'm, I'm really tempted to go, nah, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You know, but then, but then I look like I'm really good. Instead, what if my response was like, actually, I'm a pretty selfish person and I'm looking at my clock and I'm wondering if I can really afford to give this much time to you, but you know, like God loves... I want to show God's love, so go ahead and, you know, God bless. Now, the person would probably think I'm a little weird, but, but I think God's more, much more likely to get the credit for that than me just being a good person. Um, back to the introduction story, because I think it shows it a little bit more poignantly. When the Northwest airline pilot and his family are living large in the suburbs— saying that God loves us, saying that Jesus came to earth to live among us and to show us how to live, and he died for us, 
I think that message can ring true. But when the same family goes and lives humbly in an eight-by-eight mud hut on the side of a mountain telling villagers, like, God cares so much that he sent Jesus to come and live with us, and we've come to live with you to tell you that message. Which one rings louder? I got to think the second one, God gets much more of the glory, a lot clearer. In the same way, God doesn't say, Joshua, go take this city. He says, Joshua, I am giving you this city. I am giving you this land. Not go take it in my name. I'm giving it. And so they do. Now, now lots of things are said and done in the name of God or in the name of Jesus that really aren't from God and from Jesus. So, so as a side note, how do we know? How do we know which is which? How do we discern that or divide that? Some cases, it's just hard. We don't. Um, sometimes, though, you have to say, like, did you actually hear from God? And the person may say yes, may not. Um, but sometimes when, when that's even fuzzy, we can say, does it have God's characteristics? I mean, if Jesus says, and he does, he said, um, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Like, I'm, an, I'm a likeness of God. I am, God and I are one. So whatever qualities you see in Jesus Those are the qualities that you'd see in God. So are those qualities showing up in this activity or in this act? Is kindness and compassionate and generosity, if those things aren't flowing through it, then maybe it's not from God. And and does it line up with Scripture? Like Philippians 2, um, 3 and 4 is is a verse that I try and use to decide, to like uncover people's motives. It says, don't try to impress people. Do nothing out of vain conceit or selfish ambition. Um, this translation says it, don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others better than yourselves. Don't look only to your own interests, but take an interest in others too. When someone is saying they have the greatest deal for me, and it's like God told them to tell me, I use this verse. So God is saying, in this case, we know, because the, the, the storyteller has provided it for us, God says to Joshua, I am giving you this city. Why? God wants the glory for it. He wants these people to know it. Not because he's a fame-seeking, self-centered God. He created people, and he gave them the will to either choose him or not choose him. He doesn't wipe everyone on the face of the planet and start completely over even though he could. He saves a few. He saves a remnant. And, and this isn't just about the Israelites. The Israelites were also known as God's people. God wants the world to know that he is the one true God that ultimately comes and climaxes in history through the person of Jesus. And he wants everyone to know that. And we know that because, because he involves everyone. Going back to the story that we're looking at here, the story says the whole army and the priests much march around the city. Not just the religious men, the priests, or not just the soldiers, the fighting people. Why? Because, because like uh, just a few weeks ago when the, the Jordan River, this raging river, stops and all the people cross through, like everyone experienced that. Everyone walked through these muddy waters at the bottom, not waters, but like this muddy mud, <laughs> and, and came up through. 
and sat down. And everyone watched them take these stones of remembrance and set them out so that they could go, God was here. God moved. We didn't just hear about it secondhand. We experienced it. These priests and these um, soldiers could say, we're experiencing God's presence. We're experiencing God's power. We're experiencing God's leadership firsthand. God could have just said, you know, the walls are going to collapse. You don't even have to do anything. But he didn't. He wanted the people to trust him and know that he is truly God. So the, the, the story continues in verse 12. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests again carried the ark of the Lord. The priests with all the ram's horns marched in front of the ark of the Lord, blowing the horns. Again, the armed men marched in front of the priests with the horns behind the ark. All this time, the priests were blowing the horns. On the second day, they marched around the city once and returned camp. They did it again. They followed this pattern for six days. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time, they went around seven times. The seventh time around, as the priests sounded the long blast of their horns, Joshua commanded the people, Shout! For the Lord your God has given you this town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to God. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected the spies. Don't take any of the things set apart for God or for this destruction, or you yourselves will be destroyed, and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made of gold, silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought to his treasury. So when the people heard the sounds of the ram's horns, they shouted as loud as they could, and suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed, and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. There is some, there's some death, there's some destruction here. Um, it, it, people, give, um, people say about, about the Bible or about the Old Testament especially, there's so much death or there's so much killing or there's so much violence. Um, and, and there's this God of wrath, and why would he have destroyed all those things? It's a valid statement. But if you look at the entirety of the story, it's like 27 verses long, there's actually two verses that talk about death or destruction. And the majority of it is talking about God's instructions, the people listening, and the people's obedience. So it comes out to be like 7%. I mean, we pay higher sales tax than the amount of stuff that is talked about as violent. Um, it also doesn't sugarcoat it. It also doesn't exclude it to try and make it appear um, better than it is. And so that, gives us, um, that can give us confidence that, that what the scripture is saying is true. But here's what we know. That, that in the midst of this death and destruction, there's salvation. There's salvation for, for a woman who believed. This, this woman named Rahab that really had an immoral vocation, but yet believed in this God who wasn't a part of God's family, who wasn't part of the chosen people, was saved. Not just her, but everyone who was in her house. She got to tell people that there's this one true God that, is bringing, that are bringing these people, and we can stay in my house and we will be rescued. We will be saved. Verse 25, it says, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Well, maybe not to this day, but to the day it was written. 
Not only does she continue to live with God's people, she becomes a part of God's family. She becomes a part of the family line of the one who would save the world. So like in Matthew chapter 1, it's giving this big, long ancestry. You know, where did I come from? Maybe you had to do these in school of this is my grandparent, this is my grandparent, this is my grandparent, this is my grandparent. And I had a grandpa that was named Andrew Jackson, which I thought was really cool, but wasn't the president. But it would have given me some like influence or credibility or maybe. But in this case, it's the same thing. So Jesus has this line of people that, that he comes through. And it's a really big deal who these people are in this line. And so it comes through and it says, Abraham was the one who, who really God said, you're going to be part of my family. All you have to do is believe, and we're going to show the world what it means to have a relationship with me. And so then Abraham had a son, and had a son, and had a son, and had a son. And it's a patriarchal society, so it's like, son, he was the father of this person, who was the father of this person, who was the father of this person. In Matthew 1, verse 5, it says that Solomon was the father of Boaz. And then there's a little parentheses. Whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. And if you're, if you're a Jew or an Israelite, that's a really big deal. And then through David's line comes Jesus. Why are these women included in this patriarchal society? The author is making a big point. If you look at the women who are in this line, and we'll do a really cool someday Um, We'll go through that and why that's such a big deal. But in this case, the author wants to show us that Rahab, who was outside of God's community, believed, and regardless of her past, regardless of even her present, she was brought in to God's family. So much so that God said, you're going to be part of my chosen line where the Savior of the world would come. That's a huge, huge, huge deal. Now, what does God have to say in this story to us today? I mean, it's a 3,000-year-old story. But really, what does it say to us? Um, I think the point, one of the points, is that God doesn't want great, self-sufficient Christians. He wants completely committed followers of him that show him and his glory So maybe Rahab is the story that you need to hear today because maybe you've really never had a a church community or a faith community. Maybe you've really never had, you know, when we talk about a relationship with God, you're like, okay, I really don't totally understand what that means. And, And you feel like you've put so many walls up in your life that you can't get to God. Or you feel like others have put walls up like in front of you so that you can't get to God. If that's you today, know Rahab's story where she was just a girl who believed and the wall came down for her. Not just her, but those in her influence, those around her, those who, who in spite of what she did and what she had done, like accepted her or loved her. And, and all of those people were brought into God's family. So if you need to hear that today, hear it. Rahab just believed in this one true God and she was included. But maybe you're more like a, one of the soldiers. Um, like you're a man or a woman of action. When, when somebody says like, oh, just wait on God, or you know what, I just, I just wait for God, I just listen for God, and I don't really do anything until, until God says so. And when you hear someone like that, you're like, that's just lazy. Um, because, you know, God helps those who help themselves. 
So you need to take action. Well, for if you're one of those people, if you're one of the soldiers, then, then maybe the point of the story is that God wants to use you not for your many talents or the ways in which you've trained and the ways in which you've prepared your whole life like these soldiers, but maybe in a way that just shows people who the one true God really is. Maybe, in fact, by your self-sufficiency, you're actually the wall that's blocking people from seeing the one true God. So if that's you, what, what needs to come down in your life so that people don't see your self-sufficiency or my self-sufficiency, but they see Jesus? Um, maybe, maybe actually your story is Joshua's. Where, where God is saying to you, like, I've destined you for leadership. I, I have destined you for great things. And I need, you to, I need you to not focus on those great things. I need you to not focus on the fame. But I need you just to focus on me. Like God is saying to Joshua, Joshua, just listen to me. Not in a parent-child demanding way but like in a, in a partnering way. He's saying, listen to me, Joshua. I mean, obey my instruction. And you will lead not just yourself, but many, many other people to this promised place. Um, I, had a, I had a scrapbook because I, I grew up in a really small town. And uh, not super small, but small enough where I could play three sports and be in band and be in like the extra other extracurricular activities. So like my name was in the paper for just about anything good. It could have been in the paper for anything bad, like on anyway, uh, but it wasn't. And so over the years, I developed a scrapbook that was about two and a half, three inches thick of all the times my name was in the paper. And we even had a lady in town who was a neighbor of ours who would like cut it out every time and send it to me. I don't know how many other people she did this for, but she sent it to me. And so she'd put it in there and fold it in, put it in the envelope and send it way to go and then pass it on. It was always like, oh, I have no idea who this person is, but wow, that's so nice. Put it in the scrapbook. Um. And, you know, I got to put that all out for my high school graduation, you know, the tributes to the mosaic of whoever, the mosaic of Rob. And there's, you know, millions of pictures that go up on the wall and there's little finger sandwiches and you, you like, people come over to your house and they stare at pictures of you and they look at your accomplishments and, and you have to stand there and greet everyone. Well, a few years ago, the, the story is going to continue for a second. You can tell who I need to relate to. Um, a few years ago... Uh, my high school girlfriend's mom sends me an envelope that's two inches thick. She's like, you know, I was just saving these things. Um, and it's all of these scrapbook things that she had. Now, some of them were repeats, but some of them are new. And now I'm like, obviously well out of college, um, married to someone else. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm looking at this and, and I'm going, does it even matter? I mean, it was fun to, to, to look at, but with this new perspective of, I don't need to impress anyone. My worth doesn't come from the amount of scrapbook pages I have. My worth doesn't come from who says good job. My worth doesn't come from a, a, a really sweet neighbor lady who was encouraging me. Um, my worth comes from the one true God who says, you're my son. Or, 
or in some people's cases, you're my daughter. I love you just because you're in my family. And then I'm reminded of this little quote that, um, that a, wise, a wise lady would say to me, you know, because my name was in the paper a lot in good ways. And she would say, Rob, you're the greatest when nobody knows it, including you. And I've always hung on to that for years and years and years. That, that we're not called to seek our own fame. That we're not called to seek great things in the name of great things. But we're called to seek the one true God. And when we obey him, when we say, yes, God, I'm going to follow you. And if that means um, that I'm going to follow you to points of absurdity or the points where, where my name might be taken down or the points where I'm going to have to trust you or the points where my income is going to come down or the point where where relationships are going, to be, are going to be strained because I'm going to follow you, I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say I'm all in. And if you're Joshua, then hear that, but also hear this. The story would have never turned out the way it did if Joshua had not been doing what Joshua did best. Back to verse 2. Yes, he was a great military strategist. Yes, he was Moses' right-hand man. Yes, he was the leader of the people. But verse 2, why, what was the thing he did best? It says, as they're gearing up for this big thing, the Lord said to Joshua. Now, I'm pretty sure it wasn't a text message. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a conference call. I'm pretty sure it wasn't a drive-by prayer. The pattern in Joshua's life was that he got quiet regularly. The pattern in Joshua's life that he, was, he went to meet with God regularly. He figured out places for there to be sacred space where he could hear from God. And it, you could say it this way. You could say Joshua's private prayer life prepared him for his public leadership. I'll say that again. Joshua's private prayer life prepared him for his public leadership. Now I pray wherever you're at, whether you need to hear Rahab's story or the soldier's story or Joshua's story, that the Holy Spirit would even like right now, because we believe God's present here, right now be speaking to you about what it is exactly, individually, that that means for you. But for us, like as I've prayed this week, um, you know, just through this scripture and and what it means for us as a community, because the Bible speaks to us communally a lot more do, than, than it does individually. And I think that idea is what it is for us. That our private prayer lives as, as a faith community would prepare us for our public presence. That people wouldn't see a lot of human activity when we start a church, but they would see, they would see God at work. And I think that's why we've had some struggles and some hardships along the way. Like not just me and my family, although we've surely gone through our share, but even like people on the launch team and people that have said, yes, I'm going to help with this or I'm going to lead this ministry. They've had hardships in their own lives and in their personal lives. And I think that those things are happening because along the way that God wants people to go, oh, that wasn't just their great self-sufficiency. Do you know what they went through? Like that must have been God. Like you read all the books on starting a church and none of them will say, go ahead, have the main pastor get sick and not be in, in presence for three weeks and just see how it does. No one will say that. But what happened? Like, it, I mean, not that it's all about getting bigger or better, but, it, but you all stayed. 
In fact, you're all like, oh, Mike did a great job. Because it's not about me being up here. It's not about some, anyone being up here. It's about us moving into God's presence and us corporately agreeing with our private prayer life, saying that God is in this and that other people will see that. So as we move into the season that we're calling Grand Opening, that's my prayer, that our private prayer lives would be preparing for our public presence. That the Grand Opening weeks of April, like each week in April, is just a way to tell the community that we're here, that, that does it in a way that, that, is, that is us, um, that isn't, you know, like 17 billion like, mass mailers saying we're the next cool church in town. You should come check us out. Um, we're so much cooler than that other church down the road. No, that's not us. Um, but it's just a way to say we're here. Um, and then in May, we'll have a series that will be easy to invite people to because people need to know that God is personal, that God cares about them. And, and so what does that mean for your private prayer life or our private prayer life? I think it, it just means, God, um, what do you need to prepare in me? And who are you preparing near me that I need to invite into my life? That I need to invite into my life group? That I need to invite to a service thing? Or, or maybe that I need to invite to a worship service? Again, not to get bigger and better as a church. We want to be a church where we know your name and we know your story. Um, but it's to show people who the one true God is. So let's just ask the Holy Spirit as we go back to the Lord in worship through song and in response to him, what does it mean for us to say that we're all in, that we're wholly his, that he's our God, that we can do that corporately and individually? So um, pray with me, please. Holy Spirit, I thank you um, for, for stories like my friend Jay and for stories like, like these walls of Jericho that aren't stories of conquest, but are really stories of obedience and stories of you. God, I pray that our lives would be stories of obedience, that they'd be pictures of, of you, God, at work, not just us scrambling around. So God, um, tell us what uh, we need here, but help us to stop and listen, whether we're whether we need to hear Rahab's story, God, or um, the soldier's story, or, or Joshua's story. Work, work in us, God. Um, change us, God, to be people that are ready to hear from you and ready to obey you and ready to follow you. May our private prayer lives really do that, God. Um, so even in this time of song, may, may it be a song to you.